Welcome to this podcast, History, Darkness, and Light. I'm Dr. Matthew Stevens, and in this podcast, you'll hear interesting stories from our past that tell us something about the best and the worst of the human condition. This is Episode 1, The Mole Catcher's Tale. History can tell us about past ideas and events, and in doing so, it tells us something about the universal. When we hear voices from the past that say what they experienced and how they understood what was happening, we also often get a sense of their character and personality. In the past 3,000 years, human beings haven't evolved one bit. This means that as true as the old refrain of Leslie Hartley that the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there, may be, the people you meet there usually have the same recognizable personalities and foibles we see in our friends, family, neighbors, and acquaintances. So I thought we might start this podcast with a voice from the Middle Ages, speaking in his own words. We all know someone who is always in trouble with the law, who stumbles through life along the line between honest work and minor criminal mischief. And we all know the type of person who is likely to tell a tall tale to get out of trouble. The bigger the trouble, the more incredible the story. This episode is about one desperate man, a simple mole catcher from the county of Kent in England, and the incredible story he told to try to save his life in 1440. But first, some context to introduce you to the world in which he lived. In later Middle Ages, England and France were tied together by war, the so-called Hundred Years' War. In fact, it lasted more than a century, from 1337 to 1453. The English kings tried to occupy and annex most of France, claiming dubiously to have inherited the French throne. And over this time, English fortunes waxed and waned. But as the English had need always to keep an occupying army in France, the burden of the conflict grew over time. By the 1430s, there was much exhaustion among ordinary people with a conflict that kept taxes high and seemed to give little in return. A combination of disrupted trade, a chronic shortage of silver coins, the universal currency of the day, and other things combined to thrust Western Europe into a deep economic depression. Times were hard, especially in Kent, through which ran the roads soldiers walked headed off to the port Dover and war, and along which they returned, invariably poor and demoralized. The government was seen as incompetent. King Henry VI had become king while just nine months old, when his father Henry V had died in France following a period of unprecedented English success in the war. But infant Henry's reign was at first managed by a regency council for 15 years, which fell into infighting and eventual mismanagement at home and abroad. During this time, the French peasant girl and heroine, Joan of Arc, led a remarkable French military comeback from 1429. By the time Henry VI was crowned in 1437, still less than 16 years old, England's army was a shambles and the government was extraordinarily in debt. People were pointing fingers at anyone in government, but especially at the king, who was a shy and mentally fragile lad, 
and the various nobles surrounding him. So, where does the extraordinary tale of a mole catcher fit in? Because that's what I'm going to be telling you today. And yes, mole catching really was, and remains, a real job in England, catching furry rodents that dig holes in the ground. There is, in fact, an official British mole catcher's register, even now. Now, our mole catcher from the Middle Ages is named Robert Goodgroom of Offspring, Kent, although he would testify in court that he had previously gone by the name of Robert Green, a courier, that is, someone who makes leather, presumably in his case, leather from moleskins. Robert was not such a nice fellow as your common exterminator. At the end of 1439, he was caught red-handed stealing silver from churches in Kent, This put him in a rather tight spot, destined for the hangman's tender embrace. So he thought things over and decided to try to bargain his way out of the noose. The law allowed, much as it does today, an accused or guilty person to reduce their punishment by informing on other criminals, especially in cases of treason. The catch was, in medieval England, If you were found to be lying, you would suffer the punishment due for the crimes you accused others of. But hey, as our mole catcher must have thought, what have I got to lose? On Tuesday the 12th of January, 1440, Robert Goodgroom managed to get before the two coroners of the county of Kent. He then told his story, asking specifically that it be written in English rather than the usual learned Latin of the day. This was so that the court would, in his words, write all my matters of my appeals, as I have told you, word by word, and in no other way. Now, Middle English can be a little tricky, so I'll do my best here to keep the flavor of the original while making things clear. This is what Robert Goodgroom said. It is to have in mind that I, Robert Goodgroom, about twelve days after the feast of St. Michael, in the seventh year of our said Lord the King Henry the Sixth, that's about 11 October 1438, us modern folk, I came to the manor of Gravely, Kent, where lived Thomas Burgess, squire, and coming into his manor house, I met with one Richard Croft, of the same parish, living there with the same Thomas Burgess. This Richard Croft said to me, Robert, you are welcome, for I must learn of the craft of catching moles. And I said to this Richard, I shall gladly teach you this craft, if you would learn it. Then the said Richard bade me to go into the garden of the same manner and look for moles, if any were there. As I was walking along to the said garden, I came upon a building in the same manner that is called Cheese House. And there I see smoke in the house. And so I go to the house and find that the door is shut fast, locked, that is. Therefore, I went to a window of the said house on the north side and with a dagger opened the window and looked inside the house. There I see a light under a still made of clay, and there I saw lying on a cheese vat 
in the said house an arm and a hand of a dead man. Whereupon I turned away and meant with the said Richard, and asked of him what kind of house exactly was the said cheese house. Which Richard answered, and said it was a cheese house for making cheese. And then I said, I saw me something, for I looked in, and there I saw a dead man's arm lying on a cheese vat. To which he said to me, Ah, Robert, you saw that. I pray you to keep counsel and hold your peace. For you could come to know as much as I do what a man might do with such an arm. You could use the same craft. And furthermore, Richard said to me, You have a craft which I know that no man can do like you. And if you will teach me your craft, I shall tell thee what strength that arm has and what power it has. If you will ensure me that you will teach me your craft of taking moles. Thereupon, an arrangement was made between the two of us. And then Richard said to me, Take when you want the arm of a dead man that has lain in the earth for nine days and nine nights, and put in the dead hand a burning candle, and go where you wish. And though you be there and see people, they that are asleep shall sleep, and they that are awake shall not move whatever you do. In other words, while a person carries the arm and hand, he shall be invisible. And I quote again here. And also, Robert, Richard said, Since you have assured me of our arrangement, I shall teach you a craft, which shall avail you in a week forty pounds money. And then I said, I get not so much with my craft in all my life. What exactly is your craft? I pray you, tell me. And the said Richard told me, You shall take five manner herbs, the names of which I have written in a book, in the flesh of a dead man that has lain in the earth nine days and nine nights, and grind the herbs and the flesh together as small as mortress. And uh, mortress is a kind of thick meat soup in the Middle Ages, so it's a really fragrant image there for you, grinding this dead man's meat in the mortress. And then take and put it in a clay pot and stopper it well with wax and set it down in the earth and let it stand there and congeal forty days and forty nights. And then at the end of forty days and forty nights, take it up and put it in a still and distill it to water and put it in pots for you may with three drops slay both man and beast for that is the worst poison in the world. And then I asked of the said Richard, Have you got any of this standing in the earth right now? Then Richard said, Nay, but I know where some is. Then I said to Richard, I pray you, tell me where that is. And the said Richard said, Go to the place of John St. Clair, gentleman in Faversham, Kent, And if you may go into the garden, go to the north part of the garden, in the corner, and there shall you find a pot standing in the earth containing the same matter. And so two days later, 
I went to the place of the said John St. Clair in Faversham, in the said county, and so I came and knocked on the inner gate, and then came to the butler of the said John St. Clair, who asked, Who's there? And I answered and said, I am here, Robert Goodgroom, mole catcher. And then he said, The butler, Welcome, come here and drink. And so he had me into the buttery, and we had a drink, and then I asked to leave the buttery and go into the garden and seek some moles. And the butler bade me to go in God's name and search. And I, I do love this image here that apparently mole catchers, rather than having a shop where a customer would seek them out, it seems mole catchers kind of wandered neighborhoods looking for wealthy houses and offering their, their clearly prized mole catching services. Or at least that's the way Richard Goodroom would like to imagine the world he lived in. At any rate, Goodgroom's testimony continues. He says, I went into the garden of John St. Clair to the northern part and there tested the ground with my mole staff and there found a clay pot containing three bottles covered with yellow wax and a linen cloth, the wax being half an inch thick. And then I took away all the earth around the pot and took my knife and cut a hole in the wax upon the pot's mouth. There came from the pot a foul smoke and a great stink. And then I looked into the pot, and within was pitch black, and therefore I covered the pot again with the linen cloth and the earth. And in the meantime, the said John St. Clair, his wife, and his manservant from Faversham Church arrived through a meadow to the said garden and came through the back gate. Seeing me near the pot, he came to me with a large dagger called a wood knife drawn, and his manservant with a dagger drawn as well. And he said to me, What are you doing there, thief? You shall be dead. And they took me and led me out of the garden and into a stable beside the side gate, and said that I should be dead unless I swear upon a Bible that I had not discovered the pot which I had seen. Then I answered and said, Sir, how should I discover this thing? I know not what it means. And then said John St. Clair, I know well that neither you nor any man of Kent or Essex could have found that pot unless you had been taught by some confidant. Therefore, since you are so aware of my confidence, you shall swear secrecy upon a book or else be dead. The said John St. Clair sent for a book and made me swear, and once I had sworn, I asked him of what matters exactly I should keep secret. And the same John said to me, Now that you are sworn, I shall tell you. O oh, Robert, thou know well the great war in France is a great hindrance to this realm, and also the years of expensive grain, and also the taking of grain, by the king and certain lords, oh, it is a great cause of destruction to the said realm and the common folk. Thereupon the said John St. Clair said that he and them that had been his confidence and in agreement with him would remedy this situation so that there should not be so many lords 
in this land as there are now, not to rule over the land. Then I asked how many lords should be destroyed and who are his confidence and in agreement with him. Then John St. Clair said, For as much as you are sworn to me already, and know some of what I plan, I shall tell you all. There is a person in the city of York named John Leverton, yeoman, dwelling in York at an inn called The Heart and the Swan, and another person called John of Levstoft, merchant of the county of Suffolk, and a third, the said Richard Croft of Graveney, who you already know. They and I, that is to say we, in March, at the last feast of St. Edward the King and Martyr, meant and imagined how and in what ways we should destroy the lords. Then I asked, Sir, what lords exactly? Then John St. Clair said, The king is one. Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, the king's uncle, is another. And the Duke of Norfolk, a third. And I'll jump in here to say that Uncle Humphrey was one of the men who until very recently had ruled for the boy King Henry as part of the Regency Council. And the Duke of Norfolk was the young son of another member of the former governing council. So to carry on with Robert Goodgroom's testimony, he then asked John St. Clair how the destruction of these men should be brought about. And I quote him again here. John St. Clair said this, With the pot that you found in my garden, and with other craft, for we agreed at Christmas that come twelve months after the feast of St. Edward, that is, next March, a year after first agreeing the plot, all shall be done and brought about. Therefore, I went on my way to London and occupied myself with my craft, catching moles, that is, until the feast of the Epiphany next following, that being January 6th, 1439. And I like the way which Goodgrim's story jumps really quickly here without explanation from the sudden exposure of the whole plot by John St. Clair for no good and clear reason, right to, and so I went back to London and carried on mole catching, as I do. Robert's testimony continues thus. I, Robert, on the Thursday after the feast, hired a horse from one Payne brewer living in Fink's Lane, London, at a rate of fourpence a day, and I rode into the north of the country, arriving at the city of York on the following Tuesday before the feast of the purification of St. Mary, that is, the Tuesday before the 2nd of February, 1439. And I rode to the house, indeed the inn, of the said John Liverton, and lodged there from Tuesday until Saturday next following, at noon. Within this time, I and John Liverton fell into communication, and he asked of me what county I was from. I said I was of Kent. He asked me what tidings out of that county. I said, I have none, but God save one. John St. Clair of Faversham sends his greeting, and would like to know if you will keep your promise that you have made or not, and whether you have put your quote, water to prove or not, that is to say, have you brewed your poison or not? 
In answer to which, John Leverton said to me, Robert Goodroom, for his love, you are welcome. And that the water is good, you shall see it proven. And so I and John Liverton went into a loft chamber beside the east door, and a black dog came with us. And John Liverton took a little pot out of his right sleeve, closed tight with a little peg. And he called the dog to him and dropped three drops of that water upon the dog's back. And the dog fell down dead with his four feet sticking upwards. Lo, he said, here is good proof. And I said to John Liverton, Sir, is there any more men in the country that knows this craft? Then John Liverton said, No, only one John Steengate, a merchant of Suffolk, which has agreed to meet with us at an assigned time. Whereupon I, having this knowledge, took my leave and departed and came to London. Now, having told his story, Robert Goodgroom went on to swear to it as follows. And so I, on this Tuesday, the 12th of January, here at Maidstone, County Kent, before the said coroners, acknowledge myself to be the king's traitor, forasmuch as I had knowledge of the treason of the said John St. Clair, John Liverton, John Steingate, and Richard Croft, against our sovereign lord, the King Henry VI, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and the Duke of Norfolk, falsely and treacherously imagined, and have kept it secret from the king and his consul and his ministers until this day. Goodgroom then went on to confess, knowing of some grain sent by certain men to the king's Dutch wartime enemies. This was a serious accusation of treason at a time of grain shortages, but he afterwards returns to his account of poisoning. Robert claims first that the same John St. Clair Faversham sold half a pint of the deadly poison to a chap who plotted to murder the sheriff of the county of Kent. Then he claims that four years earlier, back in 1436, Thomas Burgess of Graveney, gentlemen, that being the same fellow who owned the manor house where our story began, had had John St. Clair and Richard Croft kidnap and poison a king's justice, as we would say today, a high court judge, and the man's name was John Martin. And after the justice's death, Thomas Burgess had married the justice's widow. At this point, the coroners became quite interested and quizzed Robert a little more until he admitted that he heard this last bit only while in prison where he had contact with the man who allegedly plotted to poison the sheriff. But Robert also tacked on one last story, and here I'll let him speak in his own words a final time. I, Robert, was imprisoned in the stocks at Stallsfield, Kent, and there being in prison, the Monday after Easter, 1439, the said John St. Clair sent a message to me by way of his butler, that if I would ask for the coroner and acknowledge my own felony and forswear everything else, that is to say, keep quiet about the plot, then I should have him as a good and supporting master whenever and wherever he should meet me. That is to say, John St. Clair offered to buy Robert Goodgroom's silence. 
Now, this seems a rather odd offer, since if Robert should admit his own felony, as suggested, that is, the, the theft of gold that got him arrested in the first place, he would almost certainly hang for that alone. So let us pause here at the end of this confession and consider what we ought to make of all of this. Historians, after all, love this kind of testimony because it gives us all kinds of incidental detail. Robert mentions his mole catcher's staff. So apparently mole catchers carried a distinctive staff. They also seem to have just dropped by houses of richer persons and offered them their services, a bit like a door-to-door salesman. Robert also rented a horse in London for four pence a day, so apparently you could rent a horse like we rent a car now, and the price he gave was likely realistic. Even if his story was being made up by a fellow just to save his skin, it had to be at least vaguely believable. To this end, Robert, or people like him, must have believed in witchcraft, or at least thought other people might. Probably his stories of the dead man's hand, magic invisibility, and a brewing poison in the earth reflected various folk traditions and legends. Unfortunately for our mole catcher, he was talking to two rather practical county officials. It turns out that the main characters in Robert's story were real people. The court rounded up Thomas Burgess, Richard Croft, John St. Clair, the innkeeper John Leverton of York, and the once-mentioned John Steingate of Suffolk, and questioned them for signs of treasonous activity. But it was decided that the story was baseless, and they were all let go. This was especially bad for Robert Goodgroom, because he had accused these men of treason. You might recall me mentioning at the start of this podcast that if you tried to save yourself from punishment by giving false evidence of crimes against others, you would get the punishment for the crimes you alleged of them. Robert was in prison for theft, punishable in theory by hanging. But he had accused men of treason, punished by being hung a little, taken down while still alive, having your intestines drawn out like rope, and then having your body chopped into four pieces. As the expression goes, you were to be hung, drawn, and quartered. In May 1440, Robert Goodgroom was indeed hung, drawn, and quartered, a Tyburn near London, and as was custom, parts of his body would have been nailed to the city gate of London as a warning to others not to commit or falsely to allege treason. But the story does not end here, not exactly, anyway. Remember how the county coroners had suddenly become interested when Robert had accused Thomas Burgess of murdering a king's justice, John Martin so as to make off with his wife. Well, the county officials had become interested at this point because Justice John Martin really had died suddenly back in 1436, and Thomas Burgess really had married his widow. Further, those at the trial of Robert Goodgroom and his execution, those who were still alive years later at least, in 1453, 
must have had paused to stop and remember Robert's wild tale of witchcraft and a plot to poison the king. Because in that year, in 1453, the psychologically fragile Henry VI received news of what amounted to total defeat in France and fell into an incoherent stupor that would last 18 months. In this time, he was awake, usually, but could not speak or recognize people. Even when presented with his newly born son, Edward, he failed to recognize those around him or acknowledge that the child was his. Modern historians and doctors have suggested catatonic schizophrenia. But many people at the time suspected poison, witchcraft, or both. So could there have been a little truth in the mole catcher's tale? Well, I wouldn't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. Thank you for listening. An original Middle English edition of Robert Goodgroom's testimony was published by Margaret Aston in the journal Historical Research, issue and volume 36, 1963. The song used in this episode is Side Effects by Fog Lake from freemusicarchive.org. Thank you.